The year was 1958. A rabbi from London was traveling home by sea ferry from Holland, where he had been for a couple of days to attend the 75th birthday celebration for his aunt, a Holocaust survivor who lived with her daughter and son-in-law in Amsterdam. The rabbi was on his own, and he wandered around the ferry ship as it rumbled through the choppy waters of the North Sea. It was a seven-hour trip, so plenty of time to amble around the shabby boat, although, the truth is, there wasn't that much to see. Then suddenly, he spotted a fellow Orthodox Jew. The man was sitting on the deck, and next to him was a young boy, reading intently. The rabbi walked up to them. Shalom Aleichem! The two men shook hands, and the boy nodded, and then went right back to his book. Actually, it wasn't a book. It was a Mishnais. The rabbi was taken aback to see a young boy like that, so into his learning. Where are you from? he asked the man. We're from Rotterdam. The man gestured towards the boy. This is my son. He's in public school. There's no Jewish day schools in Rotterdam, so he does all his learning at home. He loves learning. The rabbi looked down at the boy. He seemed to be about 10 or 11 years old. He was completely engrossed in the Mishnais, rocking gently, saying the words of the Mishnah quietly to himself. The boy didn't look out of the safer, not even for a moment. Where are you taking him? the rabbi asked. Why are you travelling to England? I'm bringing him to London for a summer camp, the father answered, so that he can be with other Jewish children and meet other boys who also enjoy learning Torah. The man sighed. You see, he's starved of good company where we live. There's no other children like him. The rabbi shook his head. And what then? What will you do with him after the summer? The boy's father shrugged his shoulders. He's going back to Holland, he answered, back to public school. The rabbi thought for a moment and then he took the father's hand. Don't be silly, he said. He can move in with us. I have sons his age. He can live with us and he can go to a proper Jewish day school. A boy like him, who learns Mishnais on a ferry ship, such a boy doesn't belong in a public school. The father looked shocked. Are you serious? Do you really mean that? The rabbi put his hand on the father's shoulder and looked him straight in the eyes. My dear friend, he said, do you really think we met by accident? Do you think, do you really think that God put us together on this boat by mistake? It's obvious that Hashem wanted us to meet. Don't you see? The reason we met today is so that I can help you with your son's chinuch. Your son will be like one of my own children and he can live with us until he's ready to go to yeshiva. And just like that, the matter was settled. The rabbi gave the boy's father his contact details, and by the time the summer camp was over, all the arrangements had been made. The boy moved into the rabbi's home, a home that was full of hustle and bustle, in particular because of the rabbi's rambunctious sons. But the story doesn't end there. A couple of years later, that same Mishnayis learning boy from Holland went back home to celebrate his bar mitzvah in Rotterdam. Initially, the rabbi, 
his London host, was planning to attend the bar mitzvah. But at the last minute, the rabbi was unable to go. So instead, he sent his oldest son as the representative of the family. In Rotterdam, the rabbi's son was very taken with the boy's older sister. He noted how she effortlessly took care of the whole simcha and what a wonderful hostess she was to all the guests. And so, on Moti Shabbos, they went out on a date. And then again on Sunday. That date lasted all day. They went out again on Monday. And on Tuesday, the rabbi's son called his father. Daddy, I've met the girl I want to marry, he told him. Who is she? It's the bar mitzvah boy's sister. Yes, I know her, the rabbi said. She studied at the Beis Yaakov Seminary in London, and I was her teacher. She's a wonderful girl. You have my blessing. Mazel tov. It's an unbelievable story. A chance meeting on a ferry crossing from Holland to England had resulted in an eager young boy getting a full Jewish education, and it also resulted in a wonderful shidduch. The thing is, this story is very personal to me. Do you know why? Because if it had never happened, I wouldn't be here. You see, the rabbi who chanced upon that boy and his father on the ferry crossing was my grandfather, Rav Yosef Tzviduner. The man from Rotterdam with the boy on the ship was my other grandfather, Uri Yehuda Cohen and his son Bram. And the young couple that met at Bram's bar mitzvah and later got married were none other than my father and my mother. Talk about Hashkocha Protis. It doesn't get more obvious than this. Believe me, there's so much more I could say about all the people I've already mentioned. Each one of them was so special. But right now, I want to talk about that 11-year-old boy from the ferry crossing in 1958, who was then the bar mitzvah boy in 1960, and who was also the catalyst for connecting his family to my father's family and everything else that followed. That boy, that accidental shadchan, was my uncle Bram better known to the few people privileged enough to know him as Rabbi Avraham Cohen, Harav Avraham Aryeh ben Uri Yehuda HaKohen, Zecher Tzadik Livracha. Last week, Uncle Bram died suddenly, with no warning. A week earlier, he turned 76. And there's no easy way of saying this. His passing has saddened me to my core because Uncle Bram was much more than just my uncle. Uncle Bram was the person who inspired me to be the best version of myself that I could ever be, pushing me to learn and to excel in my learning and in my knowledge, but always with the lightest touch and with no pressure. I would like to tell you a little bit about him, although whatever I say will never be enough, and nothing I say will ever truly do him the justice he deserves. Uncle Bram was my Rebbe, my primary teacher, although when he first started teaching me when I was 11, I'm ashamed to say that I was nothing like he was when he was 11. Suffice to say, 
had he been anything like me on that boat in 1958 at the age of 11, my parents would never have met. In fact, my late mother told me that Uncle Bram once called her in complete despair to tell her that he was quitting teaching for good. If my own nephew is the worst boy in the class, if I can't get my own nephew to take me seriously, what chance do I ever have to be a successful teacher? He was beside himself. My mother, who was the calmest and most sensible person ever, managed, thankfully, to talk her brother off the edge of that cliff. And a few years later, after having realised with grudging regret that my best years were slipping through my fingers, I went to see Uncle Bram, my tail well and truly between my legs. What can I do for you? he asked. I want to be able to learn and to enjoy learning, I said sheepishly. So far in my life, I've wasted so much time, but I really want to turn a page. Can you help me? Can you learn with me? Uncle Bram looked at me. His face was serious and stern, but his eyes were so soft. If you're really serious, I'll help you, he said. And he did help me. But before I tell you about that, let me fill you in on some background details. Because Uncle Bram, Rabbi Cohen, was one of the most extraordinary people I have ever known. But what made him even more extraordinary than his countless intellectual and pedagogic qualities was his lifelong mission to appear as ordinary as possible, as much as possible. He almost succeeded, but not quite. Uncle Bram was extraordinary because he came from Holland to England at a young age, not speaking a word of English and with a very limited Jewish education. Despite that handicap, he quickly progressed and outpaced his peers to become not just proficient in his spoken and written English, that part was easy, but he also became an outstanding Talmud Chochem, a Torah scholar to a level that elevated him above, above even the most famous Drabonim, Dayonim, and Rosh Hashivas. He was utterly unique, a throwback, a throwback to another age. He knew the entire Shas Bavli, all 2,711 pages by heart, by which I mean that he knew every word of the Gemara, as well as every word of Rashi and Tosfus, as clearly as if the page was right in front of him, long before Google existed. We, his students at Menorah Grammar School, would ask him about a random story in the Gemara while he was on lunch or break duty, just to test him. For example, we'd say to him, where's the story about Choni Ma'agel? Without missing a beat, without even a second's hesitation, he'd answer with the correct citation, Tanis Chov Gimel Omadalev. And his tone was like, of course it's there. Why are you even asking? There are two things I'd like to say about this. Firstly, he never, ever got it wrong. However obscure the citation was. Do you hear that? He never 
got it wrong. Never. And we always checked to be sure, but we knew even before we checked that he was right. Secondly, and this really tells you about his personality, Rabbi Cohen knew exactly that we didn't really need to know where the story of Chonema Agel was. All the story about Rabbi Akiva, all the story about Rabba, all the story about Rabzeira, or whatever story you were asking about, he knew very well that we were just testing him to see if he knew where the story was. But, and I only realized this much later, he also figured out that if we saw that he knew the Gemara with such clarity, at the drop of a hat, whenever he was asked, that this was another form of teaching. It might just might teach us the importance of learning and the value of Gomorrah because, to be clear, Rabbi Cohen wasn't a show-off. On the contrary, he was about as far as it is humanly possible to be from being a show-off, which meant that when he dropped his guard, or seemed to drop his guard, it had to be for a reason. And it had to be for a pedagogic reason. He was teaching us something. And the one thing he wanted to teach us most of all was that we should love Torah and that we should love learning. Last week, I heard the following story for the first time. I heard that when Rabbi Cohen prepared for his smicha on all, on all four chalokim of Shulchan Aruch, and was tested by his rabbi, he passed the tests on Erechayim, Yeradein, Choshem Mishpat with flying colors. And the rabbi who gave him smicha was overwhelmed by how well he knew it. Now he was ready to test him on Evan Ha'ezer. But Rabbi Cohen decided not to take the test because he felt that although he would pass the test, after which Evan Ha'ezer would be included in his smicha, it would be a dishonest inclusion because he didn't know Evan Ha'ezek quite as well as the other three. But there it would be on the smicha along with the other three as if he knew it just as well as the others. He couldn't abide such dishonesty. So he simply opted out of the test. To be clear, I don't doubt that his knowledge of Evan Ha'ezer was well above average but it just wasn't at the stratospheric level he felt it needed to be at so that it was on a par with the others. So, he didn't take smicha on Evan Ha'ezer, period. I mean, who does that? No one. But Rabbi Cohen, Uncle Bram, did. That's what made him so special. On more than one occasion, I can remember that when we blurted out something particularly silly in class about what we were learning. And of course, we always said whatever we said with great confidence, however ill-informed it was, as if we knew exactly what we were talking about. Rabbi Cohen would pause for a moment and look at us directly in the eye with his piercing gaze. My dear boy, he would say, you won't find that anywhere in Shas Bavli or Yerushalmi, Sifri, Sifra, Mechilta, Tosefta or Medrash. Nor is it in the Rif, the Rambam, the Ritva, the Rashba or the Meiri. 
and we didn't need to check. In fact, there was no way we could check. But even so, we knew it was true. We knew that Rabbi Cohen was right and that the silly thing we had said was just that, silly. So we never went there again. Another lesson learnt. Don't say something unless you can back it up and then you won't make a fool of yourself. The thing is, how unique and unbelievable is that? You're a boy in your teens and you have a teacher that knows everything about everything and he's on tap, available all day, every day. It's like having Albert Einstein teaching you high school physics or Bertrand Russell teaching you mathematics. Who has that when they're just 13 or 14 or 15 years old? No one. How lucky we were. And the truth is, we didn't even appreciate it. Until he was at least 50 years old, Rabbi Cohen, Uncle Brum, was clean shaven. He dressed in grey suits. He stood at the back of shul and he refused any honour or even acknowledgement of his superior status. If it would have been up to him, he would have been Mr. Cohen, not Rabbi Cohen. And the craziest part of it is that we got lulled into thinking that he was ordinary, just an ordinary guy at the back of shul who knew the whole of Shas by heart and who could answer any question on any topic, not just Jewish topics, and never get anything wrong. We must have missed the fact that all the other teachers in the school were in awe of him. We must have, it, must have, it must have escaped our attention that besides for teaching at the school, he also gave a dafyomi share at 5.45 a.m. every morning and still found time to learn with a range of chavrusas every day. And then we left school and we went to yeshiva and to college and finally, often years later, the penny dropped. Rabbi Cohen, Uncle Bram, was not a high school teacher. He was actually a world-class scholar. He was a world-class intellect with a vast range of knowledge and incredible pedagogic skills, who was masquerading as a high school teacher. The reluctance to be in the spotlight was just a ploy so that he could spend his life doing what he loved doing most, learning and teaching. Uncle Bram had such enthusiasm and such a sparkle in his eye as he turned each new page in the Gomorrah. And a new safer or book was for him the greatest excitement. My brother Zev told me that he was once at Uncle Bram's house when he got a delivery from Ben Arza, the legendary old city bookstore, which sent him parcels of new sepharim on a regular basis. One of the sepharim in this latest box was the newly published volume of Yabia Oimer, the halachic responsor of Chacham Ovad Yosef, Uncle Bram's eyes lit up when he saw it. I just can't wait to read this, he told Zev. The next morning, Zev saw Uncle Bram and he noticed that he appeared a bit bleary-eyed. Is everything all right? he asked him. Rabbi Cohen looked sheepish. 
I stayed up all night reading the new Eabiaimer. I just couldn't put it down, he said to Zev. Can you believe it? He'd actually read the new volume of Eabiaimer overnight, cover to cover. The whole thing, like it was a thriller novel. He never went to sleep because he was so excited with a new Sefer and he couldn't sleep before he'd finished it, down to the last delicious page. Isn't that incredible? Everything about Rabbi Cohen was organized and disciplined. His handwriting was so neat that it looked like it was printed off a printer. His method of learning was utterly methodical. He was very influenced by his years in Brisk and he would always look at the Rambam if he wanted clarity in a piece of Gomorrah. But he didn't allow the Brisker Derech to slow him down. For him, covering ground was key. Unless you'd been through Shas and you knew it properly, what would be the point of parsing a few lines of Gomorrah and getting through a duff a month? As he once told me, Toisphus are only able to ask questions on Rashi from other Gomorrahs because they learnt those other Gomorrahs. Otherwise, how would they know that what Rashi had said made no sense? He was such a tremendous resource and always available if you needed to consult him. In the afterword of the book that I wrote on Jewish history episodes, Mavericks, Mystics and False Messiahs, I described my initial introduction to the notorious but largely forgotten case of the Get of Cleves. The Get of Cleves controversy was a landmark legal dispute that escalated into a full-scale polemic involving dozens of rabbis and communities in the late 18th century, and it left a mark on the halachic system which continues to reverberate to this day. The story was that during the late 1990s I was asked to get involved in a tragic situation on behalf of an estranged wife who was unable to obtain a get from her husband even though they had been living apart for some time. He, he had been very abusive towards her during their marriage and the marriage had irretrievably broken down. The husband refused to give her a get under any circumstances but later he told her family he would give the get in exchange for an exorbitant sum of money. It was a straightforward case of extortion, and sadly the wife's family were not able to come up with the extravagant sum the husband was demanding. It was at that point that they approached me to see if I would be able to get the husband to drop or at least reduce his demands in exchange for the get. I was outraged. Even if the family was able to come up with the money, I felt it would be a disgrace to give in to this man's sick demands. After consulting with the Dayonim of the London based inn, I told the husband and his family that I would be conducting a public campaign against him and anyone associated with him, namely his family, his business, his supporters, whoever they were, until he gave his wife her get, with no strings attached. I told them we would organize demonstrations outside homes and businesses, publish adverts in the newspapers and write to every synagogue and institution he was associated with to explain how he was a Masariv Ladina. I was very bullish about this strategy as I knew that the husband's family was terrified of negative publicity. Then, out of the blue, I got a phone call from a close friend of the husband's family. 
This guy informed me that a few years earlier, the husband had been diagnosed with a chronic mental condition, and that if I went through with what I had threatened to do, the family would use his history of mental illness as proof that he was legally incompetent, which would mean he could not give a get. I wasn't sure what to do. Before the call came, everything had seemed so simple. Now it appeared as if I had been outsmarted and outmaneuvered by this mischievous plan. So I decided to telephone Uncle Bram. He would know immediately if there was anything I could do. He knew everything. I called him and explained what had happened and asked for his opinion. Should I throw in the towel? I asked him. He was silent for a moment and then he asked me if I had ever heard of the Get of Cleves. No, I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. Just look into the story of the Get of Cleves, he told me, and you will see why their threat is meaningless. They can't claim that the husband is insane and legally incompetent, that they can't give a get. If he is fully functioning in every way and just has occasional mental episodes. The man who called you has no idea what he is talking about. Look into it. You'll see that after the Get of Cleve story, being insane enough so that you can't give a get is more or less impossible. The man gave a get. Years later, when I included the full history of the Get of Cleve saga in my book, including how I had first found out about it, Uncle Bram called me. I see you mentioned our conversation in your book, he said. Thankfully, he didn't sound upset. I quietly breathed a sigh of relief. I made sure not to mention your name, I mumbled. Thank you, he said. And by the way, the book is fantastic. Let me tell you this. Of all the compliments I received for my book, his is the one of which I am most proud. After all, this was the same man who once told me that my enthusiasm was just a mask for my ignorance. I reminded him of that particular comment the next time I saw him. He chuckled. I was right, wasn't I? You were totally right, I admitted. Well, at least things have changed. And he smiled. That smile of approval was worth everything. Now, I want to go back to that summer in 1989. I sat there facing him, a little crestfallen. I've wasted so much time, I said, but I really want to turn a page. Can you help me? Can you learn with me? We were in his dining room, which at that time was where he did all his learning. He looked at me with a very solemn face. If you're serious, I'll help you, he said. What do I need to do? Cancel your summer plans, he said. That wouldn't be simple. I was already booked to be a counsellor at Camp Stechemed in Israel. Oh well. Cancel your summer plans, Uncle Bram said, and we will learn together every day. We'll start straight after breakfast and go on until supper time, and after doing it for four weeks, you'll be ready to learn on your own. I looked at him. Was he actually suggesting that we learn for 10 to 12 hours a day? 
I'd never sat and learnt for more than a couple of hours at a time, and I didn't know how I was going to do it. How was I going to manage? But this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Uncle Brum was still looking at me. So, are we going to do it or not? I hesitated. He stuck out his hand. Instinctively, I gave him my hand. We shook hands on it, and it was done. The deal was done. And that was how I spent my summer in 1989. We learnt through the first ten duff of Sanhedrin. I learnt that first omud with Uncle Brum hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. I still know it by heart, word for word, to this day. Dine momenus bishloisha. Zelus vachavolus bishloisha. Nezek vachatsi nezek tashlume kefel vachatashlume abo vachamisha bishloisha. And then Rashi, Dine Momenus Bishlosha, Bigmori Afinon Luhu. We need Psukim to tell us why these types of cases are ruled in front of three day on him. And without Rashi saying what he says, we would be left wondering why the Mishnah had ruled this way. Uncle Bram patiently explained that Rashi is telling us, don't worry, it will all make sense once you start learning the Gemara. Okay, next Rashi, Xelois, what is a Gazlan? The Mishnah gives us no indication, so Rashi steps in. Uncle Bram told me, that's what Rashi does. Every Rashi has a purpose. Every Rashi has a function. Do you know what a guzzlin is in this first Mishnah in Sanhedrin? A kofer bepikodon, someone who denies that they have a monetary obligation. They have something that belongs to someone else, but they decide to keep it and use it for themselves. The Mishesholach Bayad have a guzzlin. As soon as the person with the picodon decides that they're not giving it back and that they are going to use it and keep it, then that person is a guzzlin and that person needs to be judged in front of a basin of three day on him. I could go on and on. It's as fresh in my mind now as when I first learnt it with him. We went over every line of Gomorrah dozens of times. He made me read each line, each phrase, until I got the punctuation right. He made me tell him the reason behind every Rashi. He made me look up every reference and citation in Toysavus. We read through every Rambam and compared it to the Gomorrah. It was the most thorough grounding anyone could have ever had to learn Gomorrah. It was a Gomorrah learning boot camp, one-on-one -on -one with a master, a world-class Talmud Chochem. And after that summer, I never looked back. I could pick up any Masechta and a piece of Gemara that would have previously been dense and inaccessible was now familiar and comprehensible. I don't know how or why he did it for me. And I'm ashamed to say, looking back, I, I'm not sure I ever thanked him properly. But perhaps I did. Not by saying thank you exactly, but by learning with him, because after that summer, and for many years afterwards, until I moved to the United States, I was Rabbi Cohen's regular chavrusa, or, to put it more correctly, a foil for his marathon thirst for learning. At any time, I could get a call. When are you coming over to learn? Even when I visited London from Los Angeles, and I'd call him to say hello, he'd tell me, Knock on my front window at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. We can learn. And of course I did. What a privilege. Over the years, we covered so much ground. And whenever I learn a Gomorrah, 
even if he's not in the room with me. He's right there at my side. What does Rashi want? Don't be lazy. Go and get the other Gomorrah and see what Tosfus is talking about from the other Masechta. Don't rely on your memory. And this from a man who had a faultless memory. I want to end with a message to Uncle Bram's wonderful wife, Doda Yaffa, and to his wonderful children, Nomi, Pini, and Shimon. No words can describe the gratitude I have to Uncle Bram. No words are adequate. Whatever I am, whatever I know, and my knowledge is meager and meaningless compared to the vast oceans of his knowledge. But, but whatever it is, it's all only because of him. Not just in Gomorrah. I remember that when I was taking my Jewish history degree, he insisted on reading every one of my essays on subjects ranging from Bible criticism to Minhage Ashkenaz, from Rav Sadia Gon to Rav Nachman of Breslov, the latter not being one of his favorites, I must say. But whatever the subject, he was not just informed, but fully informed and well-read. And he allowed me to drink from that fountain of knowledge ceaselessly and with the greatest of pleasure. Even in recent years, if I ever hit a brick wall in my research on some obscure topic, I'd call him, and he always managed to pull a rabbit out of the hat. It was the result of a life of endless dedication to learning, 15 hours a day, relentlessly, from the youngest age, for more than 60 years. As his family, you should find comfort in the fact that his learning impacted the lives of hundreds, if not thousands of people, his colleagues and students, and their colleagues and students, all of whom are the product of this one humble, soft-spoken, unassuming man who was perfectly content that no one would ever know how great he really was. But he was great, one of the greatest people I have ever known. I couldn't tell him that while he was still alive because he would have never allowed it. But now I can shout it from the rooftops, and I will, and we should. A tzaddik nistar revealed. It's the very least we can do. The loss of Rabbi Cohen, of Uncle Bram, still hasn't quite hit me. I cannot believe I'll never have the chance to learn with him and spend time with him again. May his departure from us be brief. And may we soon be reunited at Chiyas HaMesim. And may we all merit to see Bias Goyal Tzedek, the coming of Moshiach, Bimheir of Yomenu, speedily in our days. Amen v'amen. Thank you.